Mickey Mike, Mickey Mike, Mickey Mike. Welcome. You are now tuned in to the Mind Wanderers podcast, the podcast where we wander and explore the world around us. I'm your host, Timmy Chatelou, and this is episode seven. Seven. So like I always had that extra chip on my shoulder. So like every day in practice for me was really trying to annihilate everybody that was that I was playing against. Because I wanted to prove you don't need to babysit me. Like I, I'm fine, <laughs> you know. And uh, and so it's always um, that competitive nature, the work ethic, and curiosity. Because I asked a lot of questions. When playing with Byron Scott, I asked him a lot of questions. Eddie Jones, who was great at chasing guards off the screens, and I didn't understand how to do that. I would sit with him before practice, after practice. Magic, all the Laker greats, I would always sit down and just ask him questions about certain games that I studied growing up. What actually happened there? What did you feel there and why? This has been absolutely beautiful, you guys. I can't believe it's come to an end. Um, you guys will always be in my heart. And, uh, what can I say? Mamba out. Just before I start this episode of the Mind Wanderers podcast, I would like to say rest in peace to Kobe Bryant, Gianna Bryant, and the seven other individuals who lost their lives in the helicopter crash on the 26th of January 2020. Kobe was a great athlete, he was a great individual and someone who embodied work ethic and the reason why I took a section from a motivational video to play for you guys was just to highlight how he always asked questions and was always a curious individual. I do remember a story I heard of Kobe one time where he said one of his opponents moved like a shark and just out of sheer curiosity he went and studied sharks in order to maybe somehow get an edge above his opponent which just goes to show how dedicated he was as an individual to his sport and to being the hardest working individual. Um, I it would ju I just thought it would be very nice to have a little chance to uh, say rest in peace Kobe so from that I will now begin the episode so welcome to episode 7 of the Mind Wanderers podcast I just want to say thank you to all the listeners who have listened to any of the previous episodes last week's episode was taking a wonder in the world of Charlie Brown and Snoopy and the episode before that, I was with the founder of the Obsidian Network, Deji, and we spoke about mavens, super mavens, and the power of networking. Remember, you can find the podcast on all podcast platforms. You can find the podcast on Twitter, which is at mine underscore wanderers, and you can find the podcast on Instagram at mine wanderers underscore podcast. So today's topic is going to be on language and how language shapes the way we think. Um, I'll just want everyone to close your eyes 
and imagine an octopus on a bicycle writing notes on how to solve Brexit. The reason why I have made such a silly example is just to highlight how powerful language is in terms of bringing ideas into our heads and just the way we phrase certain words together can bring about very vivid imagery, can make us think about things in a certain way and can make us, uh, if anything, if Uh, influence the way we react to the world around us and the reason why this was the question I wanted to deal with or what I've been thinking about for the past week is we've just basically done Brexit by the time you guys are listening to this podcast Brexit has now been done or just the first phase of Brexit essentially signing the withdrawal agreement but yes the UK has now left the EU and the power of language paid uh, or played such a major part in the decision to leave the European Union. And I just thought this was further highlighted by just all the propaganda that was actually out at the time and the messaging and leave, leave UK or leave EU. I can't remember what that organization was called. But you must remember the main message that was being communicated by the leave camp was get Brexit done. And that was what they bombarded everyone with, get Brexit done, get Brexit done. And this further highlights how powerful language is because in the message, get Brexit done, it implies that getting Brexit done is a one-step thing. You it's, you basically jump out of the pot and you're out of Brexit. Whereas in reality, Brexit is not a just get Brexit done. It's a get the first part of Brexit done, get the second part of Brexit done, get the third part of Brexit done. And then the life after Brexit is its own form of Brexit in a sense. But the strong language of get Brexit done is what resonated with a lot of people. And that was the reason why we they were able to win that battle of changing people's minds. Because as strong as the messaging was on the leave side, the messaging side or the remain side didn't really stack up. So it was a constant battle between what language could resonate with the British public a lot more. And again, language is just a very, very important part. So later on in the episode, I'm going to dive into um, the hypothesis called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and how that plays a part in how language shapes the way we think. I'm going to lead into a woman by the name of Lyra Boroditsky. And she has a very popular TED talk, um, which is on the topic of how language shapes the way we think. And she gives very interesting examples as to how maybe a German person might speak different in terms of adding masculine and feminine pronouns to certain words, whereas English people don't have that same sort of language system and how that shapes the way we think about certain situations, how we remember certain situations and how it influences is the way we think about certain things in our world so i would recommend anyone to go listen to her her name again is lira boroditsky but i'll play a bit of it a bit of her ted talk um a bit later on um aside from that last but not least 
2020 has now thrown in this new curveball, which is by the name of coronavirus. Uh, coronavirus is a pneumonia-type disease, uh, I guess similar to SARS back in, I believe, 2004. And it's basically swept the world. It started in a centralised or mainline China city called Wuhan. And basically started from people selling live animals in a market i believe it was a fish market and through this we uh i believe someone contracted a virus and that has now been spreading across the globe and the cdc and the world health organization are all running around scrambling around to mitigate this situation one thing that did come to my head was and this is actually going to be my wonder for the week. So before I actually start, let me quickly play wonder for the week. So my wonder for the week is how are viruses and diseases named? Because as I was saying before, coronavirus, I don't know about you, but when I hear coronavirus, I'm already in some sense of fear and I'm thinking, I don't want this. I don't care what it is, but I don't want anything coronavirus. And I did some research to look into how we actually name our viruses now. It turns out that we reformed the way we named viruses back in 2015 because the World Health Organization understood that language in regard in regards to a disease or virus plays a big part in how the public deem it an issue or how they're going to react to the news of a new outbreak of such a disease. So what they figured out was in order for a name not to be socially harmful what they would need to do is make sure it avoids using um, geographical names or people or uh, let's say an animal species if you want to think about it back in I believe it was 2009 we had swine flu and that really pissed off a lot of people because um, there was an American farmers um, union that complained heavily that um, swine flu um, actually hurt a lot of their sales and there was also a very interesting story I read about a candy called AIDS and not the AIDS that we all know it to be now but prior to the AIDS outbreak um, back in the 1980s I believe there was a candy um, also by the name of AIDS but spelt differently instead of AIDS as we know the disease to be this candy was actually called AYDS at but said the same way nonetheless and with this it meant that they had a dramatic drop in sales following the outbreak of the AIDS disease and AIDS stands for autoimmune disorder syndrome I believe so with that it meant that a whole candy company or a whole, a whole candy franchise was effectively wiped out or cells were really affected by the announcement of an AIDS disease. And the WH, um, the World Health Organization also said they want to avoid words that incite fear when they hear it. And so stuff like um, a name with definite or black death or fatal or epidemic was something that they said any new diseases that they weren't going to include it in the name. 
So now we have this new coronavirus whose actual name is 2019-NCOV. And that was following the new best practices that the World Health Organization actually uh, made up. And what in the name is that 2019 was the year the virus found. The N in the name stands for novel and the COV stands for Corona. And so it's through that decision of naming it that name that we then shortened it to coronavirus and that's why everyone knows coronavirus to be what it is now but i thought this was really really interesting just to see how even in uh organizations such as the world health organization they understand that language does shape the way you think about certain things and language is going to be a pretty important part of how a disease is going to be dealt with so instead of naming it the coronavirus or black death <laughs> they've just named it corona or they've just accepted coronavirus would be easier turns out that corona actually um means because is the name corona comes from the bacteria that coronavirus is from and it has spikes as horns and i thought that was kind of interesting so that's why it's actually called corona but um with all of this being said, I just thought it would be very interesting to find out how viruses and diseases were named. So as we are all out here and coronavirus is spreading, keep yourself safe, wear your mask. And as the Chinese say, stay inside. <laughs> or oh, that's what they're saying now. But yep, that is my wonder for the week. And back to the show. Going back to the main topic of today's episode, which is how does language shape the way we think? I'd like to introduce the two individuals by the names of Edward Sapir and Benjamin Lee Wharf. These two individuals came up with the theory called the Sapir-Wharf hypothesis. And this hypothesis asserts that the structure of language and language itself shapes our culture and shapes the, shapes the way we experience reality, essentially. And one, just before I go into it, I would like to give a quick shout out to my friend Cloudy. And it was her that gave me the idea for this topic. So shout out to Cloudy. And with this topic, I thought it was really interesting because I don't know how people feel about that. Do people feel that language does shape the way we think? I think it will be hard to disagree with that proposition, especially in today's climate, because when you think about how sensitive people are to language and using particular words and using particular words to describe people, it goes to show that we now, as time has moved on, understand how influential and how impactful language can be onto an individual or just to a generic culture in which we live in and how negative connotations can have negative outcomes and can shape the way it can shape the way we think which will then ultimately lead to shaping the way we treat people and that is something that I wanted to explore with the Sapir Wolf hypothesis and it also leads to certain ideas as well because certain languages have certain proverbs and have certain parables that they tell I remember one that my dad 
um, used to tell me when I was quite younger, and a lot of Nigerians may know this as well, but it's, you can lead the horse to the water, but you can't force the horse to drink. And I believe that was a very popular Nigerian saying uh, back when my dad was younger, when he was living in Nigeria. And what it goes to show is a culture that effectively is explaining to you that you can do as much as you want to get someone to do the right thing. However, you can't force the person to do the right thing. So you can lead the horse to the water to drink, but if they're not going to drink, the horse isn't going to drink. So I just thought this was another really cool example as to the way language can shape our experience of culture and the way we see things and just the general way that we think. So I'm just going to go into a short interlude now and then I will delve more into the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Give me a sec. I will slap you if you don't move this car. Pichino. I'm going to slap you. Pichino. I'm going to slap you. Okay. All right. Okay, look. Here. You understand that? Now you're speaking my language. Well, get the hell on then. Come on, let's go. So the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis basically asserts that the way language is structured affects affects the thinking of a person as it can influence, shape and mould their view of the world or their view of the culture in the world or the view of society. And this school, this uh, hypothesis is can be split into two schools of thought. There's linguistic determinism, which argues that the way you think is directly determined by the language you speak. And this is a very extreme version of the hypothesis and it, it asserts that the language that you're taught when you're very young will frame and shape exactly how all your thoughts are formed, how you think of the world, how you think of certain types of people, how you think about certain types of topics. And we all know this not to be true because we all know that regardless of what language you speak, a lot of people can come up with the same ideas and can have similar sorts of thinking. So this school of thought when it comes to the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis has been rejected completely. And it's just a case of it's more an argument to think about rather than an argument that's actually based in any empirical evidence and then there's the second school of thought which is linguistic relativism relativism <laughs> and this is basically a softer version of the hypothesis which is more widely regarded as acceptable and this version basically says your thoughts are influenced but not determined by the language you speak so let me repeat that again your thoughts are influenced but not determined by the language you speak and i think we would all agree that that makes a lot more sense because we see how language plays a part throughout our lives and the way words are used and the way they're communicated to you can definitely influence the way you see a situation um one cool example that i found was in regards to the english language versus other languages such as Spanish and in this example it was explained that English speakers tend to have active voice meaning and active voice meaning means that when describing a situation we're more likely to identify the individual involved in that situation compared to a more passive voice meaning that Spanish people use and the example that I can think of is if an English person was to see another individual break that window we will say she broke that window but for a Spanish person if they were to see 
um, someone break a window, instead of saying she did it or Sophie did it, they would explain it such that the window broke or the window was broken because their language structure doesn't necessarily force them to identify the individual. And the reason why this is quite a uh, a big aspect in regards to language and the way we actually think is because if you were to apply this thinking in let's say a court for example the if your language means that you're more likely to remember basically an incident rather than the cause of an incident this may have implications for stuff like eyewitness testimony and this was further explained by that woman i referred to before lira boroditsky and just thinking about it when speaking about blame there's also that song by kanye west and john legend called blame game and it basically just talks about when you're in a relationship and when people are just blaming each other but who knows that may have something to do with the language that we have <laughs> i'm pretty sure that isn't the point but yeah it's a really cool song blame game by kanye west and john legend anyway moving on another aspect of language shaping the way you think is also in regards to i found out that people who speak more than one language actually think in more than one way as well and it's been noted some people say there was um, a friend i had who and she's a dutch speaker and she says she feels that she's being more um formal and she's being more robust when she's speaking dutch and that's compared to maybe when she's speaking english because maybe english has a bit more i guess uh there's there's more character and there's more describing words when you're using english compared to when you're using dutch and this may be because of the sounds that your voice makes when you're speaking a different language and it could just also be to the way words uh, the way language is structured in that particular uh, language even though that's a bad definition for it however there's studies that show that even simple stuff such as color is somewhat determined by the language we're taught so for example um, an english person when they're deciding between colors if they see blue and green they'll say that's blue and that's green and in regards to um, let's say a russian speaker for example they have more than one uh, word for blue so they can describe blue even further and this sort of language difference gives i guess russian speakers an advantage when it comes to describing colors because their language forces them to hone in into the reality that there are different shades of blue whereas let's say an english speaker it's just basically blue or it's not blue and they have different uh, varying degrees of blue that they can identify just through the language that they've been given so we understand that language plays a big part in the way we think and as there are over 7,000 languages in the world it makes sense that a lot of people think quite differently a part of their personality but also part of the language they're given to express that personality and so I just thought it would be really cool to extend this thinking just one step further and then when you start thinking there's subcultures within societies and there's slang and there's different dialects this, this language can shape the way you think can also explain why certain people even within the same language can think very differently to one another and now we have twitter which means we're exposed to loads of different ways of thinking loads of different ways of using language and i think 
Twitter is a very good place to see how language can affect uh, someone's thinking because you have different sorts of, I want to call it tribes uh, when you have Twitter. So you can have people who are more liberal. You can have people who are more conservative. You get those all right people. I've heard there's uh, black Twitter. So, and all of these different subcultures all have a different way of speaking or communicating using the same language. However, that language can influence the way they think because obviously within certain groups there's a certain way of thinking if you're liberal you're you believe that there should be social welfare and if you're maybe more conservative you maybe believe in more free market capitalism and when you start looking at the language that gets used within these subcultures it can somewhat explain as to why individuals think in a certain way so if you take the example of let's say a liberal person now the language that they use might be structured to make sure that they include words such as community and diversity, which shows that they're very involved with basically inclusiveness and wanting to look after one another. And let's say you flip it and you go to conservative and uh, the buzzwords you can think of are like individual liberty or job creation. And this focuses mainly on an individual person bettering themselves which can explain why conservative people believe that it shouldn't be down to government to look after um, weaker people and it should be down to being able to help yourself which is the main goal of uh, let's say the conservative dream being able to be self-sustaining so this is these are just examples as to how within language and even within subdivisions of languages you can you can actually explain as to why people think in a certain way or it can guide you and show you how people think so with that being said i would encourage everyone to look into the sapir wolf hypothesis and also to check out the ted talk how language shapes the way we think um by the woman lira boroditsky so thank you very much for listening to another episode of the mind wanderers podcast remember you can find previous episodes on spotify apple and all your podcast platforms and please share and subscribe the episode even if it's just for one person it actually really 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 does help getting the word out in regards to the podcast the podcast twitter is at mind underscore wanderers and the instagram is at mindwanderers underscore podcast so thank you again i'm your host timmy and peace